Well, it's the Advent season, and I'm delighted to be able to think with you about Christ's birth and the incarnation, the Son of God who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. Well, you may be wondering about this morning's uh, scripture as an Advent text. I don't know that we've ever read it, this particular passage in our Christmas service of carols and scripture, but I hope you'll see that the Exodus does bear upon the incarnation. Like music, the Exodus is the prelude to the incarnation. Or if you like art, it's the frame that perfectly complements the painting. <clears throat> so having heard the text and this brief introduction, you may be dashing ahead, already trying to make connections in your mind between the uh, Exodus story, the calling of Moses, and the incarnation. But let's think through this together. Uh, my hope for this morning is simple enough. Uh, I want us to see the Exodus as the prelude to the incarnation by seeing the repeating themes and the key figure in both stories. And here we'll focus on Exodus uh, chapter 3, verses 7 to 8. And then in Exodus 3, verses 9 to 14, that we'll see the significance uh, of all of this uh, for us in the name, I am who I am. Well, so first, the Exodus as the prelude to the incarnation in verses 7 to 8. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmaster. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey. Notice uh, the key phrases in verse 7. I have seen. I have heard. And I know. And in verse 8, I have come down to deliver and to bring up. We'll focus on those key phrases, but let's expand those thoughts. Verse 7, I have seen the afflictions of my people, and I've heard their cry. I know their suffering. Well, first, I have seen. Literally, it's seeing I have seen, or I have surely seen. God sees all things in all the universe, in one eternal moment. That's part of the glory of his omniscience and his omnipresence. We see things, too. We just don't see all things, just the tiniest fraction of all that may be seen. And we notice, or surely see, even just a small fraction of all of that. 
So there's much to see in this sanctuary, small it is is. But indulge me for a moment and close your eyes and think about all you have seen. Can you name everyone sitting around you? Much less name everyone here in this room. Do you know who's not here? And those around you, what are they wearing? What was the expression on their faces when you greeted them? You saw them all. But seeing, did you see? Did you notice all the details? Well, God did. You can open your eyes. God takes notice of everything. You included, and that's a tremendous thought for us to ponder. That God can focus his attention on every detail of his creation. And at the same time, keep each one of us as the center of his attention. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 3, the prophet says of the Lord, he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Well, Charles Spurgeon took that verse and he preached on it. And here's part of what he said. Our Lord sits as the refiner at the furnace mouth because he is all attention. He has, as it were, given up all other cares just to sit there and watch his treasure. He has determined that his servants shall be purified. So there he is. Everything else laid aside, giving his whole heart and soul to those whom he is refining. Oh, you say, but you exaggerate if you talk about the Lord's giving all his heart and soul to one of his people. Spurgeon said, no, I do not. The Lord Jesus watches each one of his people as intensely as if he had no other. Finite minds must have a center somewhere, and as that center changes, so the circumference of thought and action shifts. But God's center is everywhere, and so his circumference is everywhere. He says, each one of us may be the center of the divine mind, and yet none of the redeemed may be any less near because of it. Jesus watches each one, you and me and 50,000 others, all of them his chosen ones that are undergoing the purifying process. He watches each one as if there were never another for his blessed eyes to rest upon. Well, that's how God sees. And we can expand beyond seeing the Lord said to Moses, I have heard. That is, I have taken heed. Well, again, we hear many things uh, in a day, but we don't take heed of all that much. 
especially as the noise of the day makes us deaf to the other noises around us. Let me give you an example of this. I live a mile and a half from a railroad crossing. Every time a train goes through that crossing, it sounds its horn and it's loud. Well, I was laying in bed in the 3 a.m. darkness of yesterday morning, Saturday morning. I was awake. A train went through the crossing and the sound of its horn was so loud that it seemed to be going right by our bedroom. At 8 o'clock, another train went through the crossing and the sound of its horn was still loud. And then at 9 o'clock, another train. But this time, the sound of its horn was very faint. Why? Well, it's because the city of Edmond was fully awake and the air was full of noise of cars coming and going and leaf blowers and a thousand other noises drowning out the sound of that train. Well, that's not how the Lord hears. He doesn't hear your cry clearly in the wee hours of the morning and then hear you less and less throughout the day because of the other noises uh, going on in the world. No, he always hears your cry as if it were the only sound in all the universe. And yet at the same time, he takes heed to 10,000, thousand other cries. You know what that means in the Exodus story? It means that the Lord heard all the cries of all his people while simultaneously hearing the cry of each man and woman and child groaning under affliction. He heard every Hebrew mother bereaved of her infant boy who was dashed against the rocks. He heard every man struggling under the burden of gathering stubble for straw to make Pharaoh's bricks. He heard each and he heard them all. Just like today, he hears all the cries of his people throughout the earth. And he hears your cry as if he heard nothing else but you. You might turn uh, in uh, your Bible to Psalm 34, uh, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. And what does the Lord hear? Verse 17. When the cries of the righteous for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. 
Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So in seeing, as he sees, and hearing, as he hears, he knows. He knows intimately you and your affliction. That's part one of the prelude. Now part two. Consider the key phrases of Exodus Chapter 3, verse 8, I have come down to deliver and to bring you up. So far, what we know from the Exodus is that God has seen and he has heard from heaven. He knows. We have a few more details in Exodus uh, chapter 2, so you still have your Bibles open. Look at Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery, notice, came up to God. From earth to heaven went their groan and their cry. Exodus 2 verse 24, and God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And that set the stage for God coming down from heaven to earth for his people. He came down not only to keep his promise made in the covenant, but he came down in answer to their prayer. He came down to deliver them. You know, Egypt had once been a sanctuary and a place of refuge for Israel during the days of Joseph and the great famine. But after Joseph died and the Pharaoh of that day died, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he dealt harshly with the Israelites lest they should grow into an army and align with the enemies of Egypt. So the Lord came down to deliver them and to bring them out of Egypt. But he didn't come down to bring Egypt out, or excuse me, Israel out of Egypt just to leave them uh, to find a new place for themselves to live. No. He brought them out so that he might bring them up. Up to a land of milk and honey. For God is faithful to remember and to keep his promises. John Calvin in his uh, commentary on uh, this text says that the Lord marks the end, the purpose of their deliverance. And that is that they might enjoy rest and the inheritance promised to them. That is the fulfillment of what was foretold to Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 13. You might turn there as well. Genesis 15, verse 13. The Lord said to Abram, 
Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted 400 years. But I will bring judgment upon the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And so the movement of the prelude uh, goes from God seeing and God knowing to God acting from thought to action. Before we think about this in the terms of the incarnation, let's not leave so fast the thought that God came down from heaven in answer to the people's cry for deliverance. I think this is how we should think mostly about salvation. From the perspective of earth looking up to heaven, not from the perspective of heaven looking down to earth. What do I mean by that? Well, sometimes we get distressed about salvation being wrapped up in divine election. But that is trying to understand salvation from God's sovereign perspective, and it doesn't share all the reasons and the details of that perspective with us. We need to learn and take to heart Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. Those are the secret things that belong to God, and he has not shared those things with us. And I think it's folly to make divine election the focus of your understanding of salvation. Now, I'm not saying don't ever think about election. You should. It's taught in the Bible. We affirm it. It is a great and glorious doctrine. I just wouldn't make it the focus of your thought about salvation. Instead, of trying to look from heaven down to earth, God's perspective. It's wisdom also to understand salvation from the perspective of earth looking up to heaven and of God responding to cries to him to save. And so see salvation preeminently in the incarnation the Son of God coming down for us and for our salvation, walking among the poor, the hurting, the sinners, and moved with compassion, responding to their cry, even their unspoken cry. Uh, there's a good Old Testament example of this, of God taking heed to the groaning of his people and responding to that. You'll find that in Judges chapter 2. So I invite you to turn to Judges chapter 2. And, and look at verse 18. 
Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. There's a myriad of examples in the New Testament of this, of Jesus Christ, again, walking among uh, the poor, the disaffected, the marginalized, the needy, the sick, and responding to them in compassion and delivering them. I'm sure your mind could think of any number of examples, the lepers crying out to him when he heals them, the blind man, the lame man. Let me give you a, one to ponder as well. It's from Luke chapter 8. <clears throat> so again, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 8. In uh, verse 42, well, actually the preceding verses, uh, Jesus is walking in a crowd who has welcomed him. And there's a man, Jairus, and he implores Jesus to come to his house for his only daughter who was dying. Jesus will do for him because of his cries, but I really want you to focus on uh, this next Example, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him, verse 43, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. You think that woman had groaned for 12 years? And here's Jesus. But he's surrounded by a throng of people. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are surrounding you and they're pressing in on you. Jesus says, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. Why? Because she had been suffering from 12 years under this affliction. And all that that meant to her in the community of the people of Israel, groaning, and there's Jesus. And in the midst of all these people, her silent cry and her reaching out in faith to touch him. And she told how she had immediately been healed. And he said to her, daughter, 
your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I think that's a great example of someone that the crowd would never take notice. She cried. She groaned. And she began. And Christ responded to her. What a great story of Jesus' desire to help those in need who reach out to him. Well, this moves our thoughts along uh, to the Exodus story with the incarnation. The Son of God in the heavenly glory is looking down upon the earth. I have seen, I have heard, I know. I know what? Not of your bondage to Pharaoh, but to sin and to Satan and all the afflictions of body and soul that come with that bondage. And having seen, and having heard, and knowing the Son of God came down to deliver us. In the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, in all the glories of heaven, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. That's the Son of God coming down because he has seen and he has heard and he knows. And if we look beyond the words of Paul to Jesus' own words, consider John 6. In fact, again, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. Consider this from John 6, verse 33. And 35, Jesus Christ said, for the bread of God is he who marks it, comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Same chapter, verses 38 to 39, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. You see, I have come down from heaven is the language of the exodus and it's the language of the incarnation. Well, notice as well that in the incarnation, the Son of God comes down to deliver, not through an intermediary like Moses. Jesus Christ came down to act directly and personally. Think of it this way. 
Moses against Pharaoh was the undercard fight. A fight between representatives in the one corner, the dark corner. It's Pharaoh representing Satan. In the other corner, the light corner, is Moses representing the Lord. And who wins? The Lord's man wins. But that was the undercard fight, the lightweight fight. Now comes the main event. Jesus Christ himself entered the ring to face his adversary and to destroy the works of the devil. He could send Moses to deliver Israel from physical bondage, but he could not send another to fight and win freedom from spiritual bondage and death. That is a contest that he only could fight and he only could win. And he has won. In his life and death and resurrection, that's the glory of the incarnation, our deliverance won by Christ for us. But like the Exodus, there is more to our deliverance There is the promise to bring us up. Go back to John chapter 6, verses 39 and 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In the Exodus story, Israel was brought up and returned to the promised land, but in the greater Exodus story, in the incarnation, all the faithful will be raised up and brought back to the eternal garden of God the new Jerusalem, where Christ himself will dwell with us and we will have communion with him forevermore. So who is this God that does this for us? You know his name from the reading of the text this morning. I am who I am. This name speaks of unchanging, eternal self-existence. The name is based on the verb to be. In God's case, to eternally be. But the verb can also mean to become. So if you put these two thoughts together, the Lord is eternally being. And becoming. How is this possible? That God can be both eternally self-existing and unchanging, but also becoming. Well, it's possible because we're speaking about two different aspects of God. The first speaks to the essence of his being. 
The second speaks of his presence relative to his creation. Listen to this quote from uh, G. Campbell Morgan on Exodus 3. God is the becoming one. Becoming to his people whatever in his rich favor he pleases in order to meet their need and at last becoming God. The truth, therefore, suggested by this name, I am who I am, is always that first of the essential being of God which enables him to become. And by deduction that God in infinite grace does become whatever man needs. Dr. Bruce Walkey uh, calls God's becoming his pragmatic presence. I prefer a different term, the Lord's relational presence. I am who I am for you. Look how this worked out for Moses. Again, I'm taking this from uh, Dr. Walkie. Exodus 3, verses 11 to 12, Moses asks, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and lead out the people of God? And God answers, I am with you. Verses 3 to 15, Moses asks, What is your name? God answers, I am who I am. That is to say, I am who I am, and you can count on me. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, Moses says, they will not believe me. God gives him a staff that turns into a snake to verify his divine mission. Verses 10 to 11 of chapter 4, Moses says, but I am not eloquent, God. And God says, I am with your mouth. Verses 13 to 14 of chapter 4, Moses says in desperation, oh, please send someone else. And God answers, I will send Aaron with you. And then he promises, I am with your mouth and with his. Now, fortified with this reassurance of God's all sufficiency and effectiveness and presence, Moses is ready to go. You see, God met every request and need Moses had. I am who I am for you, Moses. But apply this to yourself. Do you need love? Jesus is the lover of your soul. Do you need a guide? Jesus is the good shepherd. Do you need a friend? Jesus is the friend of sinners. Do you need a place of refuge? Jesus is a strong tower, a mighty fortress. Do you need calm in the midst of turmoil? Jesus is your peace. Do you need protection? Jesus is your defender. Do you need saving? Jesus is your Savior. He's your advocate before the Father. 
Jesus is and becomes what you need in all matters of salvation. Mark this verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Cry to him in your need, and he will hear your groan, as surely as he heard the groans and prayers of the Israelites in Egypt. And even when you don't know what you need or what to pray for, he hears the groan of the Holy Spirit who intercedes for him. That is Romans 8, verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with, notice, groans too deep for word. Mark that word, groans. In the Septuagint translation of Exodus chapter 2, verse 24 that we read, there's a particular Greek word for the Israel's groans. That same Greek word is used in Acts chapter 7, verse 34, and you might look there. This is where Stephen retells the story of the Exodus, Acts chapter 7, verse 34. Surely I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. That word groaning in uh, the Greek New Testament is the same as found in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it's the same word in Romans 8, 26, of the Spirit groaning for us. So might we say that the Spirit was interceding for the children of Israel in their groans to God in heaven? I think that would be a marvelous display of the triune God's focus upon the groans of his afflicted people. And the Lord answered those groans. And he continues to answer them today. Well, one more thing and then we're done. Did you notice when Moses was struggling with going to Egypt, God in grace gave him a confirming sure sign that he would accomplish all that he had promised to do. Exodus 3 verse 12, God said, I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Well, does anything strike you as odd about that sign or the timing of it? The confirming sign of God's presence and the sure success of Moses' mission comes after he has faced Pharaoh and led the people out. I don't know about Moses, but I would have preferred a sign, something before going to meet Pharaoh, something to encourage my weak faith. 
Yet in the wisdom of God, the confirming sign comes in the middle of the mission. After the deliverance from Egypt and before bringing them in through the promised land. Well, God has given us a confirmation of our deliverance from sin and death and that he will bring us up to glory. And the confirmation is Christ's resurrection and his ascension. In his death upon the cross, Jesus paid the redemption price to deliver us. His resurrection from the dead and ascension to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father confirms our deliverance and confirms his promise that he will return to take us up to the eternal city of God. And so this morning we have uh, thought about the themes of the Exodus and the Incarnation. I think it's well summed up in the Nicene Creed where we affirm that the Lord Jesus Christ, very God of very God, the great I am, came down from heaven for you, it says. I am who I am for you and for your salvation. And how should we respond to that this morning? Believe. Believe upon him. This day, every day, that the Lord is with you in the greatness of the incarnation, the majesty of Christ coming down from heaven to save us and to bring us to be with him forever and ever. Ponder that this Advent season.